The scripture reading today can be found in Genesis chapter 11. It's also on page 5 of your bulletins. Let us pay attention and give reverence, because this is God's word. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Let's pray. Lord, we're very thankful for your text, Lord, and the reading of it. I pray that we are able to uh, understand your word by your spirit, Lord. That your spirit would speak through Parker this morning, Lord. And that you would use him as an instrument for your glory. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen. Well, there's no doubt that we live in dark times. Uh, lots of craziness. Lots of craziness, right? Not a lot of craziness in the world around us, but maybe even more in our own hearts. Does this mean that God's plan has been thwarted? That God has forgotten His plan? That He's forgotten His promises? Because, see, when we turn on the news, I mean, it's just, it's just crazy, right? Everything's crazy. But, you know, there have been darker times, much darker times. You know, there have been times when things were a whole lot darker, beginning with our text today and the situation that Abram grew up in, in which God would use Abram in that whole season and that whole time in history. See, the line through which the Messiah would come by the time that Abram was, uh, had been born was dominated by those who worship not God, but pagan idols. But see, God was playing the long-term game, the long game, the the long-term plan by which He would send forth a Savior, His Son, to save people like you and me, vile, wretched sinners who need salvation. We begin today our series on Abraham. In our text, his name is still Abram. It'll be changed in Genesis 17, and I will undoubtedly refer to him by both names, and just bear with me when I forget. But we are studying the, book, the, the life of Abraham, but before we get to understand why we need to study the life of Abram, we need to back up. We need to back up to the beginning. See, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth in six 24-hour days. He spoke all things into existence by the word of His power from the smallest atom 
to the largest galaxy billions of light years away and all the photons between here and there that we might see them. He spoke and it came into being, all for His glory. And then on the sixth day, God created His crowning jewel, mankind. See, everything up until that point was leading to this. Really, for His glory and the good of His people, God was making all things. And so God created Adam and Eve, Adam from the dust and Eve from His rib. And then God did something that He hadn't done with any other of His creations. See, He breathed into them not just physical life, but spiritual life. He made them in His image. In His image, He created them. Now, to be in His image doesn't mean that they looked like God, but rather they reflected some of His attributes, some of His character. First, they were moral creatures, right? And therefore responsible for their actions. This is the difference between if your dog bites you and if I bite you, right? Those are two different things. If your dog bites you, there may be consequences. If I bite you, well, there will be very real consequences, right? Because I am morally responsible for my actions. He gave Adam and Eve souls which would live forever. But most importantly, He made them to be in relationship, not just one with each other, but especially with Him. And in the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect. We don't even know how to imagine that, do we? Perfect fellowship with God. They didn't fight that internal fight with their own temptation, that sinful flesh like you and I fight every step of every day. The ground didn't fight back, no thorn marks on their hands. They didn't know sickness, sorrow, pain, and death. These things had not entered into the world. And and then God gave them a task, His perfect creation, His crowning jewel. He gave them a task to be fruitful and to multiply, to have dominion over the world, to, to work and keep the garden. And it was not just good, it was very good. They were in perfect relationship with God, and they were operating under what was called the covenant of works. They they were saved right by their obedience to God, their perfect obedience to God, because they didn't have sinful hearts like you and I have. So they stayed in that relationship with God by obeying Him. But then, after some amount of time, we don't know how long, everything changed. Everything changed. Evil invaded the world in the form of a serpent who was Satan. Satan appeared to Adam and Eve. God had given them one express rule, one negative rule amongst all the positive things He had told them and blessed them with, and it was, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But with Adam standing there watching failing his duty as the leader of his family, and failing as our representative, Eve fell into temptation, desiring to be like God, believing the lies of the evil one. She ate of the fruit. She saw it and saw that it, ooh, that looks pretty tasty. She wanted to be like God. She ate it and then gave some to Adam, and he did the same. And then at that point, everything changed. Everything changed. We can trace everything that is wrong with this world to that very moment. A real moment in time and space history. Every marriage problem, every sick child, every premature death, every temptation, every addiction, every injustice, every murder, every genocidal maniac, 
every temptation. It comes from this moment. See, in that moment, all mankind's hearts, their souls were broken, hearts infested by sin, and bodies and emotions were marred by what we call the fall when Adam and Eve sinned. But what would happen to God's plan? He had said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over it. This had been His plan. Does this mean His plan is over? Does this mean that God's plan had been foiled? What would happen? Well, Adam and Eve hid. This is what sin and shame do, right? We hide from each other. We seek to hide from God. They hid in the garden, whereas they had enjoyed perfect fellowship with God before this, walking in the cool of the day with Him in the garden. What does that even look like? Now they hid from His presence. Where are you, Adam? God asked. It's not because God didn't know where He was. It wasn't a a question of location. It was a question of relationship, wasn't it? See, shame and guilt had entered the world, and now they were no longer able to be in God's holy presence. And so they sowed fig leaves. I don't think fig leaves would work so well, do you? They sowed fig leaves and hid themselves and clothed themselves, and and so they stood before God in the garden to be judged. They deserved death because of their sin, and indeed death would enter into the world for the first time. And God cursed Adam. He cursed Eve. He cursed the serpent and even creation itself as the result of Adam and Eve's sin. But what about God's plan? Was it over? Had it been thwarted? And here we begin to see that God's plan cannot be thwarted by any human endeavor, any human attempt, any human failure. Indeed, even in His providence, this very fall somehow fit within God's plan. See, God was playing the long game. And in the midst of this judgment, we have the first glimmer of hope that God would plan. His plan had always been to send forth a Savior to save His people. To save His people from their greatest problem, their sin, our sin, and our rebellion against our God and against our Creator. And in Genesis 3.15, in the midst of God cursing creation and Adam and Eve and, and the serpent, we read this. As He speaks to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is what is called the proto-euangelion. The first proto-euangelion gospel. The first gospel. Yes, things were bad, but God had always planned to send forth His Son, the second person of the Trinity, to redeem His people. And here, in the midst of ruin and misery, God gives the promise that there will be a seed. Not a seed like you would plant in the garden, but an offspring. One who would come from the line of the woman. A person, a promised person, a capital P person who would come and crush the head of the serpent, Satan. So Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. No longer able to be saved by perfect obedience. Why would that not work? Because their hearts now were twisted and perverted and and longed after things which God did not want. And so now they had to be saved by God's grace. 
So with the first death of an animal, he clothes them in animal skins. And now they, because of their sin, all those who are born human, does that include you? Are born with sinful hearts because of what is called original sin, an original guilt. This is why you don't have to teach a child to sin. Now we model it pretty well, don't we? But you don't have to teach a child to sin. They get it naturally. But God saves His people now and then, not because we deserve it, but because of the promised Messiah, Jesus, who is promised right here in Genesis 3.15, who would come and pay for their sins and ours. Well, Adam and Eve have children. And things are great, right? Things go well. No. Cain and Abel. Do you remember their names? What happens? Cain murders his brother Abel. You see, there's going to be a lineage leading to the Messiah, but there's also going to be this other line that we find throughout Scripture and throughout history of those who are opposed to God and His kingdom. And so they begin again and have another son, Seth. And it is through Seth's line that the Messiah will ultimately come. This carries us to the end of Genesis 4. And then people really start begetting people, right? There's great fertility upon the earth and in human relationships. And people live a really long time. Do you remember Methuselah? 969 years. Does anyone want to live that long? I know I sure don't. I really don't want to live that long. And the earth was more fertile, and fertility rates were astronomical, and the earth became more and more populated. But as the population grew, so did the evil inside man's heart. It was so evil that we read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, "...the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil intentionally." uh, That's not the right word. Continually. And so God decided to wipe out humanity, to purify and to cleanse His good creation, the earth, that He had made for His glory and the good of His people. But the people had turned their backs on Him. But there always was and there always will be this line, this remnant, through whom the Messiah will come. What about this promise of the offspring, the one who will come and do battle with the offspring of Satan? His line would be preserved. For in the judgment that He would bring upon the earth, there was one family that had remained faithful to Him. Imagine that. Eight people amongst all those who lived on earth alone worshipped Yahweh. And through this judgment, God would bring salvation for His people. Everybody except Noah and his family died. And so God, using judgment on those who opposed Him, brought redemption for Noah. And as the waters had receded, God gave the covenant to Noah, really all creation, that He would no longer destroy the earth by a flood. And the sign of that that covenant was a rainbow, something that's been stolen from the church. As we look into the heavens and are reminded of God's promise, His faithfulness writ large in the skies above us. Back in Genesis 1.28, God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Do you know what He says to Noah and his family when they get off the boat? 
the exact same words in Genesis chapter 9. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Finally, God started over. His plan cannot be thwarted. And here is this line, eight people. What can go wrong with eight people? And then Noah gets drunk. And something really lewd happens in Genesis 9. We don't, I don't really know what's going on there. There's some hints, but it's bad, right? He ends up cursing part of his family. Eight people. See, the problem is not that which is out there. The problem is what is in here. In our hearts, that which we have inherited from Adam and Eve, our own guilt before God and our own twisted desires. But the plans of God cannot be thwarted, not by you or me or Noah. And time marches on and the world is repopulated and all the while the years of man decrease. They seem no longer to be measured in so many hundreds. You know, as we study what's called the primeval history of Genesis 1 through 11, primeval not because it's made up, primeval not because it's something that might be myth. No, it's true. It's just really old. That's what it means by that. It really reads just like our own history, doesn't it? Do we really need to read the first chapters of 1 through 11 of Genesis to see how bad things were then or now? Think about the 20th century. Think about how many people died because the evil intentions of man, somewhere between 100 and 200 million people, die directly because of man's evil desires and their sin against others. I can't even comprehend that number. Can you? But we don't have to look at history. We, don't have to, we should look at Scripture, but we only have to look at Jeremiah 17, 9 because it reflects our heart so well. My heart, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What about the promises of God? Are they thwarted by man's evil intentions? No, because it is because of man's evil intentions that God has planned to send forth a Messiah, someone who will die for His people to change us, to make us new, to save us, and give us that hope which is reserved for us in heaven. See, what Adam was told and what Noah was told and later Abraham, Moses, and David were told that there would be a Redeemer of God's people. We have experienced on this side of the New Testament, haven't we? So we know how the story ends. We know that while things look tenuous in chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis, what about your promises, O God? What about this line through whom the Messiah will come? We have seen and heard, and now we testify, right, that Jesus came into this world and was raised from the dead, and He offers hope and salvation. To you and me. And and there's this grand overarching plan which is happening as the gospel goes all throughout the world and people recognize it and call upon the grace of God leading forth ultimately to the day when Christ comes again and makes all things new and thorns and thistles are no longer around. The blessing comes as far as the curse is found. This is good news. Because there's one last major event in Genesis before we get to Abram's story, and that's the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Remember that God had told Adam and then Noah and then therefore all people to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That meant to have babies, lots of babies, and spread out. In Genesis 11, people gathered so they would not be dispersed, so they might make a name for themselves, declaring their own self-sufficiency from God. And so God's God, whose plans cannot be thwarted, confused their language. And from Babel came the beginnings of all the languages around the world. And it forced them to be scattered. Would this 
Would this scattering, would it, would it thwart God's plans? Would this finally be the death knell that marked the end of the line of promise? Which brings us to Abram. See, Abram was part of the line of promise. He was of the line of Seth. And it picked up this line of promise with Noah and then one of Noah's sons. We read in Genesis 11, it went through, I'm going to butcher all these names, Archipad, Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Reu, Sarug, Nahor, and now finally through Abram's father, Terah. But isn't it interesting that God chooses the most um, unsuspecting people to achieve His promises? There's a lot unsuspecting. There, the, Abram's the wrong guy. He's the wrong guy. Wow. Well, lots of reasons. First, he's living in the Ur of Chaldees, which is modern-day Iraq. And the Ur of Chaldees is a terrible, awful, terrible place, though it's a political and cultural and economic hub, much like New York would be today. See, it's a religious center, but not the religious center of the worship of Yahweh. Instead, it is the center of religious worship of a moon god. In fact, there's a tower there, a lot like they were trying to build at Babel, called a ziggurat. We found the ruins of it dedicated to the worship of a moon god. And at the very top of the tower, there's a silver room, and from it were made human sacrifices. God was looking for a good candidate. Oh, there's Abram. Yeah, he might be participating in human sacrifices. But God is always in the business of using the most undeserving and surprising people to achieve his ends. And who did he pick? Abram. Not because he was a good guy. In fact, his father was named after that moon god. His half-sister, whom he incestually married, Sarai is his half-sister, might have been named after the queen of the moon god. And his niece, Milcah, is named after the daughter of the moon god. This was not a godly family. In fact, we learn in Joshua 24, 2, that they had been worshiping false gods. Abram was an idolater. And yet, while they still lived in Ur of the Chaldees, what is now what was later Babylon, God calls Abram to follow him and to move to the land that he would show him. His name would be great. He would be the father of a great nation. This is recorded in Genesis 12. It actually happens in the Ur of Chaldees. We'll look at what happened next week in Genesis 12. God's plans cannot be thwarted. He's playing the long game, and in order to accomplish His purposes, He chooses an ungodly man, an obscure man, who lived in the wrong place to be the physical father through whom the line of the Messiah would come and the spiritual father of every Christian who lives. But there was another problem, wasn't there? When you're going to choose a man to have a bunch of children, verse 30 cannot be true. Now Sarai, his wife, was barren. She had no child. So God chose a man who was an idolater and converted him. He became a Christian. He chose a man who was an idolater who wanted nothing to do with God, who potentially had, who had certainly seen human sacrifices, may have participated in human sacrifices, and whose wife was barren to be the father of all those who call on Jesus. Wow. We're actually going to see this struggle of this barrenness with Sarah's story throughout our time looking at, at Abraham. See, the, the thing is that God's plans cannot be thwarted. Isn't that good news? See, God's plan ultimately for you is your sanctification. You become more and more godly. He will see you through whatever He's calling you to. He has saved you. He has given you Jesus. And He who gave up His Son, will He not also give you everything else you need? His plans of redemption 
are not just for us individually, though they are. It is that the nations would come to know Him, ultimately leading to the return of Christ. And it's good to know that as as dark as, as things may seem, either in your family or our community or in this nation or in this world, God has a plan and it will not be thwarted. Not by idolaters, not by you, not by me, not by false gods, not by evil people. Jesus will achieve His purposes. And we're hurtling towards the day of the great consummation. When Christ returns and makes all things new, y'all, it makes these days bearable, doesn't it? As we meditate, as we contemplate, not only things here on earth which are ethereal, which are temporary, which pass away, but we think on the things that are to come. How dark things must have looked in Abram's life time and time again. And y'all, he messes up a lot. He goes to Egypt. He lies about Sarah being his wife. Oh, she's just my sister. Well, she kind of was a sister, but that wasn't the purpose. And then he did it again to Abimelech. And then he goes in with Hagar. That was a bad season. And then he's finally faithful as God calls him to sacrifice his own son. What in the world's going on with that? In a lot of places, it's kind of a messed up story. Do you have a messed up story? Do you have problems? Do you have things that don't seem to have any real solution? My friends, God's plans are much bigger than our own. His plans cannot be thwarted. They will be achieved. One of those promises He makes is that He will be with you even to the end of the age. But first, Abram must get to Canaan, the land that will be called the promised land. And so we read in verse 31, Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. There's tension in that text, right? God calls them to go to Canaan. Where does he go? Haran. Right? What's going on there? Well, we find in Genesis 31, 53, that out of this whole family, only Abram calls on the name of the Lord. Terah keeps worshiping moon god. And guess what Haran is? It's another center of moon god worship. Terah originally says, yeah, I'll go to Canaan. We'll take the whole family. We'll just go there. And they get to Haran on the way, and they decide to stay there. Abraham, or Abram at that time, he will wait until his father dies. When he is 75 and his barren wife is 65, And then he will go to Canaan, and we will find him next week. So why study the the life of Abram as we land this plane? Well, when you think about the top five most important people who have ever lived, who would be on that list? I mean, of course we put Jesus at the top, right? Supposed to at church. Uh, But who else would you put on that? Maybe yourself, because we're so self-centered. Abram. Abraham would have to be on that list. Why would I say that? Because over half of the people in the world trace their either religious or physical lineage to Abraham. 55% claim to be Christian, Muslim, or Jewish. Every Jew traces their line to Abraham. Most Muslims trace their physical line to Abraham. All of them would trace their spiritual line to Abraham. And we... When we sing with our children, Father Abraham had many sons, had many sons, had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm. right. We can go through left leg if we need to, but I think you get the point. We trace the promises of God made to Adam and Eve through Abraham to the Messiah. 
Abraham is our spiritual father, and there are promises made to Abraham that are true of us now, which we'll spend the next several weeks exploring. But there's just one verse I need to read to you to convince you. You know how you start something's important. What is the opening verse of the entire New Testament? It's Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham is not the hero. In fact, we'll see time and time again. Don't be like Abraham. Trust in God like Abraham, but don't be like Abraham and all the other stuff he did. Rather, his promised seed, the Messiah, he is the one who would come 2,200 years later, who is the hero. The one God told Adam and Eve about, the one who would be wounded by the serpent, killed on the cross, but in his resurrection, Christ, the promised seed, the promised offspring, would crush the head of Satan, that great serpent. And in paying for the sins of his people, he would begin to undo all the damage done to his creation because of our sinful heart and our rebellion against God and to bring about the new heavens and the new earth. And to everyone who calls on Jesus, the promised Messiah for salvation, repenting of their sins and putting their trust in Christ will be part of not this earth and heaven, but the, the new heavens and the new earth, the day when Christ comes back, the day of judgment. We will all stand before God, but for the believer, there's nothing to be afraid of. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the life of Abraham. Uh, Lord, we thank you that your plans cannot be thwarted. We thank you, O Lord, that the Messiah has come and he will come again. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.